Okay, let's get um, let's get started here. Welcome back, everybody. Um, David has the. I think I'm going to have the announcement first, and then David David will do the. Uh, there, yes, yes. <laughs> I was looking. We just have a commercial. It's another volunteer opportunity, right? right? So. Oh yeah, this this is yeah. I'm Jan Smith. Uh, I'm from the cookie table. Right. <laughs> and, uh, luckily for me. Um, and I'm here because Paige Pusey is traveling, but she wanted you to know about an opportunity that she thought might be a good fit for this crowd of readers. Um, the congregation-wide book read is coming up, and this year the book is called How the Bible Actually Works, the very long sub- subtitle, which is In Which I Explain How an Ancient, Ambiguous, and Diverse Book Leads Us to Wisdom Rather Than Answers and Why That's Great News. So uh, Paige also says she's read it, and she said it's an easy read but ha- brings up a lot of questions, which seems appropriate. Uh, no answers but questions. Um, and she also says that there will be a review uh, in the Chronicle coming out online next week, I think, uh, by Debbie Wells. So keep an eye out for that. And there was a little notice today, actually, in the update in the worship bulletin if you were at church today. Um, So I have not read this book yet. I just got it. But um, when Mark and I were in Sunday school in South Carolina, where we used to live before we moved here, we read his other book called The Bible Tells Me So. It was very um, engaging and just kind of interesting, you know, deals with hard questions, but in a kind of quite, uh, you know, accessible way, but also very rigorous, scholastically rigorous. Um, So the dinner and dessert where people get together with the speaker and talk about the book is March 15th. So before that, in February is small groups that get together to discuss the book. And so before that, you have to read read the book. (laughs) So that's why we're, and this is our last class. So Paige said, now is the time that you uh, need to hear about this book and maybe, you know, give it a look. And it is available online, obviously only in hardback right now. Uh, But also the church library will have two copies. So anyway, it's just something to think about when you hear hear it again, you'll, Maybe remember a little bit about it and maybe be interested in doing it. Great. That's good. Yeah, this is part of our, it's called Dessert and Dialogue Series, which for the last two years now has been combined with a congregation-wide book read. The the Dessert and Dialogue, we have a a speaker in once a year. Um, We've had Francis Collins from NIH, and we had the mental health director from NIH, and we had the New York Times author, and then we had a a panel with John Lewis and Fred Upton and, and Charlie Cook two years ago. So this year it's this Peter Enns who uh, I threw the name out and recommended him, but I, I mean I've I don't know him and I haven't heard him, but apparently he's just a really great speaker and and has moved from but was actually actually taught Bible at a very Orthodox Presbyterian college, and so he was raised kind of a fundamentalist and has moved from that. And, and essentially lost his job because of that, but also now is, is a, a good lecture. And I, I know somebody that knows him well and says he really is a terrific speaker. So if you've got time to read, 
because you'll all read ahead over the Christmas break. Then you can read that book and you go to a one-night discussion that you can sign up. I mean, there will be like seven or eight of them in February. Yes? For those of us who may have still been talking as she began her presentation, the name of the book is How the Bible Actually Works. How the Bible Actually Works. And it's Peter Enns, E-N-N-S. Okay, so thank you. Now, David, this is the David show today. He did adult ed this morning. He's doing this tonight. I forgot to tell him he's got to lead the whole lesson. But Uh-oh. I could, so. talk, I could talk for a long time. The, um, yeah, so today in adult education, we, we talked about the uh, uh, community of Santiago. So for those of you that were there, I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. I always learn something from those discussions, and so I appreciate it. Uh, so I thought I'd get all the public speaking out in one day this year. So so here I am. I signed up for the same day. Um, I wanted to share with you um, uh, some some of the things uh, I'm working on. I work with a nonprofit, American Pilgrims on the Camino, and um, um, once a quarter I have to write a newsletter on uh, uh, on a topic, and the, they they pick the topics for me, and I I have to write something. And typically I wait until the last minute, and so it was due today, and. Um, uh, the topic, uh, we have uh, four values in American Pilgrims. It's uh, simplicity, service, uh, gratitude, and community. And, and this time I had to write on gratitude, which seems like a pretty good topic for this time of year, right? Um, and this morning, if you were at the adult education class this morning, we talked about the phrase, a pilgrim is grateful. And that's typically, as I was thinking about what I was going to write, that's typically um, a der- almost a derogatory thing. A pilgrim is grateful. Usually that means you've walked into some place and it's not quite what you expected, but it's enough. And you just you, know, you just say, you say to yourself, a pilgrim is grateful, and you dive in. Right? You get an, you're you're going to go sit down at a table for, uh, and have an awkward conversation with a group of f- folks that don't speak your language. A pilgrim is grateful. Let's <laughs> just go sit down. And uh, and so I was trying to think through how do I go process that into uh, into something meaningful or at least hopefully meaningful, and, uh, and so I was thinking about what's the difference between being thankful as we approach this holiday and, and being grateful, and, um, and Larry, as he so often does, when I, when I sit in the pews, I get in trouble, by the way, I do listen to what you say, and, and today, uh, when Jacob put on the crown, or put on the little tiara, right, <laughs> puts on the little tiara and then starts celebrating the new year, right, the new year of the church. I, uh, I didn't know that. That was new information for me. And, uh, and instantly I pulled out my notebook and I started scribbling notes, as I often do. And usually I diverge. Last week or two weeks ago, I actually scribbled down a lot of uh, – I scribbled down a work model for some engineering work at work as your pictures. And my wife was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, he sparked a thought. <laughs> so I do listen. But in this particular case, uh, one of the things that – Jacob talked uh, about this morning was the uh, the new with the new year comes New Year's resolutions, and so I started thinking about thankfulness and gratitude, and what the difference between those might be, and I started scribbling out what I was going to write, and I came across as I was doing a little bit of research when I got home. I wanted to share a couple of the quotes I found because I thought they were unique. In my organization, the one of the things one of the complaints I often hear it's an all volunteer organization, and there's a lot of I'll call it drudgery, just sort of that day-to-day administration. We don't have a staff, and so the volunteers do the work. And so many of you are probably involved in something similar. And one of the complaints I get every now and again is, hey, we want to have joy in our work. 
um, which doesn't always come with some of that drudgery, right? Some of the, the day-to-day administrative things that just have to get done. And so we've been thinking a lot about how do we go bring joy to the work so folks are enthusiastic about getting it done. And so I came across this uh, this quote. It was uh, from, I don't know if anybody's heard of her, Amy Collette. I hadn't heard of her until today. She's an author and a motivational speaker. She said, gratitude is a powerful catalyst for happiness. It sparks the, uh, it's a spark that lights the fire of joy in your soul. So that, that seemed to be right along the path I was looking for. <laughs> and so I started thinking about that. Um, and it turns out there's scientific proof to back that up. That if you practice gratitude, it actually makes you a happier person. It brings you joy. Why do you suppose that is? Any initial thoughts? What's the difference between thankfulness and gratitude? So as a board, we we said to ourselves, hey, gratitude's one of our our, our values. We're gonna we're gonna express gratitude to one another. So what did we do? We instantly started thanking each other for things. Like, hey, thank you for doing that drudgery, <laughs> right? Because uh, that seems like a logical way to go express gratitude, right? And um, um, and so we we're struggling through that same thought process. And we said, so now we're latched on. Okay, what is gratitude? And I found this. It was a Swiss philosopher, Henry Emile. Uh, uh, he said, thankfulness is the beginning of gratitude. Gratitude is the completion of thankfulness. Thankfulness may consist merely of words, but gratitude is shown in acts. I thought that was, that, that really sparked something. Because, you know, in an all-volunteer organization, the acts of gratitude occur almost every day. And so one of the things we've started talking about is, hey, that work that you're doing every day, that's expressing gratitude uh, for your experience on the Camino. That's why we're all doing it. And that's starting to have a little bit of, a, a little bit of an impact as we, as we talk and we think through that. Uh, I've already been on the phone talking to folks, <laughs> and we're, we're already starting to talk about what well, that means we need to, you know, some of the things we do um, are an act of gratitude. Um, and so they're important. And so and I, the other way I thought about it was, if I have, if I'm going to say thank you to a person, that'll generate one feeling. But if I'm actually trying to express gratitude for another, I have to do something to show them that they add value, that they have value to what we're doing, we have value to the organization. And so that's changed changed my thinking just a little bit, just in the short time on what are we going to do over the course of the next year um, to express gratitude for what we have, for who we're working with, for their value they add to the organization. And it's funny, the flurry of emails that are shooting back and forth today about the spark that's caused, about, hey, what can we do to make that happen? So I wanted to share that because it was just just in the last few hours, based on the things I've heard and, and the things we found, um, I shared that with, with the group, and it's, it's bouncing back and forth. So I thought that, uh, especially the, the Swiss philosopher, I thought that was, that was pretty profound. Um, just think what can what we can do if we if that sort of thought process spreads you know in person to person 
I mean, I work for the government, even in government, right? Gratitude is an act. <laughs> Does that make sense? So that's what I had to share. That's great. Thank you. So I'll follow that with a prayer. Yes, oh, Dana. No, go ahead. I have a quick thing to say that uh, thank you, Jan, and uh, by way of page and everything, but um, the book is available on Kindle as well. So Good. Not just All right. Good. Okay. So let's let us pray. So, dear God, we are um, we're grateful for how many weeks we have spent together and how we have gotten to know one another and what we have learned and studied. Um, I pray that we'll have a good session today and then a good break and come back and uh, complete this part of the Bible uh, and complete it with some wisdom and hope and growth and faith. In the name of Christ, amen. So that's cool. If if I ever you know get up and say our scripture lesson today is from First Shechariah, I want to see what your reaction is. So you'll be the one crawling out under the pews, right? That's a good story. So, all right. Well, thank you all for that. I'm sorry it's taken taken so long this year to do, but it's it's just. I mean, I realize you sit at the same tables with people, and I want to try to help you meet others as much as you can, except. It happens, you know, when you come to my house for the closing lunch, but by then, then everybody disperses. So anyway, just mix as much as you can and, and go from there. So um, this is our last time until January tw- um, 12th. Yeah, January 12th is the Sunday. And so it's a uh, – uh, and, and then we're only – I think we only meet about three times, and then there's two weeks that we'll miss because of this Israel trip. But this is a – It'll be a good, it's a good spot to break, which I always hope we can aim in these classes because we're going to finish sort of the third person uh, accounts of, of Paul in the early church today with the book of Acts. And then when we come back, you're going to be reading the letters of Paul. And that changes to, uh, to uh, do you all have the right lessons over there? Did I mess up? I've got some more over here. Well, yeah, there's extras here. So, uh, but anyway, when we come back, uh, the, almost the whole second half of the course, you're reading the letters of Paul, and that's an entirely different kind of reading because you're reading, you know, primary material, and and essentially, as I've said before, Paul would organize a church stay three months, six months, eight months, three years. And when when they were on their feet, then he would go to another town, and or, another city, and organize a church. And typically, the former church would start arguing or getting into trouble or have questions, and they would write Paul, and he would answer by letter. And all we have is his letters. We don't have the letters that they wrote to him. So it's a different kind of literature because it's really on the ground. And it's also, uh, you know, it's not literature that, that he was intending or thinking, oh, well, this is going to be in the Bible someday. So there are some things you read that, you know, you don't know what he's talking about or you don't really know what the questions are. Is that is that Jeopardy where you have to guess the questions from the answers? I mean, it's a little bit of that. Uh, and it's also... Um, 
Well, it's just it's it's very influential in the development of Christianity because as we see in in Acts, um, I mean, we're in that transitional period now where we're going from Jesus to the early church, and that transition becomes complete with Paul because what we are really dealing with there is is the people who lived after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, guided by the Spirit, as this thing called Christianity moved from its roots in Judaism out into the Greco-Roman world. So it's really interesting writing. I'll, I'll say that Paul has always been controversial in Christianity, um, and I would say particularly in the last you know couple of hundred years, um, because there were... There was cer- certainly, as people in the 19th century, the 19th century scholars went through a period of what was called the quest for the historical Jesus. That it was when historical scholarship uh, was honed in archaeology, and so there was really a movement to try to uh, determine exactly what Jesus said and where he was, to try to recreate his life historically, almost biographically, uh, from the Gospels. Because uh, there wasn't, there weren't any other sources really, and and that gave rise to a sense uh, that that may be true that 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 there was a difference between Jesus and Paul, and and that Paul may have actually corrupted Christianity, uh, that that Jesus was this pure idealist and reformer, and with Paul you got a lot of compromises. Uh, so there there were people that scholars that would pair the two of them off. Uh, in, in recent decades, and, and what you'll see from, from me is that I, um, I'm really fascinated by the character of Paul because I think in a way his task is what ours is, and that is how do you take this thing called Christianity and try to live it in a new and strange culture? Because the Greco-Roman culture to him, the, the world of Plato and the Roman gods and, and Pax Romana and all that was not the world in which Jesus lived and initially taught. And so it, it was a challenge to Paul in the early church of how to make Christianity alive and faithful, You know how to respond to what they believed about Christ in an entirely different culture. And essentially that's what we're doing because not only in the West, but but certainly in today's world, there's there's so much change and so much, uh, you know, just so much uh, more diversity in our culture and in our in our belief systems and our moral systems that we too are trying to continually ask the question: What do we believe, and how do we believe we should live in a culture that is different than? than the original instinct or the original culture in which Jesus rose. So that's why I think Paul is interesting. He also obviously comes under fire and, and, and difficulty reading because of much of what he said about women. And uh, it's, Paul is really can be anywhere from sort of enemy, public enemy number one to... Uh, to just being written off as, you know, as not being accepting of women. I mean, so there's, and, and certainly certainly women who have been hurt by the church or have been hurt by men uh, or have been just excluded in, in, any, in any sector can, can really have trouble reading Paul. And, and that's understandable, and that's part of what, you know, I want us to deal with in here. Uh, 
Paul is also important. I mean, that that's one segment. That's one way that we'll, or one issue that we'll try to address with him. Another issue, and I've realized this about myself the last two or three times, as I've taught this the last two or three times, um, there are many strands of Christianity in America, especially more evangelical or, or uh, I want to say fundamentalist, but uh, and possibly fundamentalist churches, but a lot of what is called Christian doctrine, uh, theological belief or, or ethical belief, is drawn from Paul. And uh, Paul certainly wrote theology and the book of Romans is systematic theology um, but but the way I teach Paul and, and, and those doctrines come up against um, different Protestant or Catholic or you know different groups that just don't agree with them or don't you know don't understand them or don't don't really want to follow uh, maybe his understanding of sin or his understanding of communion or his understanding of the church so you get these doctrinal arguments. But when you're in that field, you're actually kind of taking Paul's ideas, and in some in some cases, you're taking a very small number of verses from Paul and sort of divorcing it from its context or divorcing it from him as a person. And I realize that what I have come to do in 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 recent years is to teach Paul not doctrinally but narratively in that I, I try to get us to look at him as a human being who himself had contradictions and, and tensions, who himself underwent some changes, who you know, was a fascinating person, had his warts that were sometimes deeper than warts. I mean, had some serious flaws, but also some really serious, I mean, some really great fits of eloquence and beauty about faith. So... Um, now I'm not a woman, and you know, therefore I don't, I don't. Uh, I, I'm just more interested in him as a, as a thinker and an on-the-ground Christian leader trying to make sense of all this in a world that's different than the world he lived in, uh, than the world he lived in, and therefore the world we live in. And and I think it's just fascinating to study anybody from that vantage point, and that's. That's sort of what I'll do, but but I want all the I want you to feel free to ask all these other questions, especially, especially when you come across some of his writing that is that has shaped you positive positively or negatively on a doctrine, you know, on something that oh this is predestination we got to believe in this predestination or this is predestination I ain't never going to believe that I <laughs> mean you get all kinds of reactions so. I want you to be able to express those and also express just, you know, as a woman, I can't stand reading this this part of Paul. Any of that is legitimate, and we all grow from it. So that's a long introduction, but it, it will help you as you shift gears and, and read the letters of Paul. And uh, my one last little story is that... Um, I, I had a dear grandmother. My mother's mother was... Uh, Someone who, if y'all heard my sermon this summer, was really, really an, an addict all of her life until her mid-50s when, after her husband died. So about 1960, when I was five or six, her husband had died, my grandfather. And she was put in 
one flew over the cuckoo nest type mental hospital, state mental hospital in Arkansas in the 50s and had shock treatments, which in those days were drastic and horrific, but they worked. And so I remember my grandmother. I've seen pictures of her as in her 40s where she looked like she was about 80, just frail and gray and thin. But I remember her in the 1960s when she was in her her 60s as sort of a a warm, lovely Baptist lady who was plump. I mean, she went from being frail and thin to whatever happened with these treatments. She was just a really warm. I used to, uh, my memory of, of New Year's Eve being at her house in Arkansas was one, getting to watch Johnny Carson. Two, getting to watch it on the color television set, which my parents gave her and, and our other grandparents in the early 60s as a Christmas gift. And three, pulling taffy with her. She was a great taffy puller. So I've got these very warm memories of my grandmother. Now, when she would drive her little white Dodge Dart without a radio or air conditioning to Memphis to visit, it would drive my mother crazy because my grandmother would read the mail and would listen in on phone calls. She was just nosy as she could be. And so, you know, you come home and all the mail was there opened and read by my grandmother (laughs) before its recipients got to read it. When you're reading Paul, you're reading somebody else's mail. Because he didn't write, I mean, he didn't write to table number two in Alexandria, Virginia in 1919. He wrote to the Galatians or to the Ephesians or to the Colossians or during, you know, to the Corinthians who had written him. So we're really reading other people's mail. So just remember that, okay? But enjoy it because it can be fun and it can be instructive. So before we do that, let's do, I want to do the sermon at Athens and then I want to, uh, depending on how long do we go on that, we might do Paul on the road to Damascus, but if we don't have time, we'll do a couple of other things and, and then prepare to enjoy our break. So if you will turn. Yes, sure. Sure. what Jesus said? It's a great question. So we were, we were um, many years ago, we were at Chautauqua, and there was a, um, a lecturer who talked to us about red-letter Christians. Yeah, okay. And he said, you know, there are some Bibles that put everything right. that Jesus said in red letters. It was that way till the 1960s. And yeah, that's what I said, that's what you should be paying attention to. Huh. So I'm thinking, like, okay, so Paul, there's a lot of stuff Yeah. But there are so many churches where anything right. is in there, no matter who said it, like that's the law. Yeah. The basic her question is: Do the word basically is does 
do Jesus' words take precedence over Paul's words? Okay. That's a very, I'm simplifying your question. Yeah, the basic answer that almost every Christian denomination would give you officially is no. That 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 it's it's supposed to be the Bible from Genesis one to Revelation twenty three, twenty two fifty whatever it is. That it's all God's word and it's all to be read and studied and followed. Now within that, every Christian and every Jew has favorite passages. I mean, things that we really follow versus things that we don't. And certainly, many Christians would say, well, you know, what Jesus said is more important than what Paul said. But officially, it's not supposed to be that way. And I just think, I think it's all rich. I mean, it's interesting to see where, well, what would Jesus say? What would Paul say? What have they, what are they both silent on? You know, what topics are they both silent on that we kill ourselves over? You know, and what topics, uh, where does Paul seem to be stronger? Or, you know, where does Jesus seem to be stronger? Where does Paul contradict himself? Which he does. And what does all that mean? So, we don't have officially Midrash. In Judaism, the commentary on Scripture becomes part of Scripture. With us, uh, unless it's, unless it's in those 66 books, it doesn't. So that thing that you said in Old Testament that's been so helpful to me is the purpose and the type right. of each, sort of of each book. Kind of we're getting to that right. the, whether in the Old Testament, oh this is poetry or this is right. law or this is a creation narrative, but the idea of like this is Jesus' life and this is somebody trying to start a church. Right. Maybe however imperfectly that Yeah. The purpose of the piece of literature is is very important, I think. And, and in sort of strict Christianity and sort of our Enlightenment and Western and, and even fundamentalist background, um, we are all brought up, whether we know it or not, to, to open a book and we see black print on white page and it all has the same authority for us. It, it's like... You know, when when I was growing up, when you read the front page of the newspaper, you you trusted that you were reading facts. Now all of that is under charge otherwise. But you know, if you read the front page of the newspaper, you pretty much knew you were reading the news. And whatever Walter Cronkite said, you pretty much took as yeah, this is what happened today. If you read the comic section, you didn't expect that you were finding news until Doonesbury came along. But, you know, you, if you read the comics, you, you, were, you were being entertained, okay? Um, it, it is very important to read the Bible that same way, and I think it's more true to its literature if you acknowledge that this is a letter Paul wrote in response to a specific question, and by the way, we may not even know the question or the situation. I think that's truer to the literature than if you just read it as if it all, you know, had, has the authority of legislation that's been passed, you know, by the state of Virginia that doesn't allow you to run a stop sign. I think it's more, so that, that's a, that's the way I soften it, but, but I don't, 
I would not be interested in a Christianity or, or a Judaism that that said, well, just don't worry about Leviticus or just don't worry about a part of the Bible that you're not comfortable with because I actually think we grow by what we're not comfortable with. Oh, wow. And he said, don't pay any Any attention to it. Right. He said, um, it was probably just a pawn. They made it up. It's a story. Don't don't think of it literally. So that conversation has really... Ruined you. No, no, it hasn't. It hasn't ruined you. Yeah, it is a big question. And and believe me, there are many Christian ministers that, that would say the same thing. There, there's a, I know this is getting a little bit off, but it's really not. We'll, we'll cover the text. But there was a very influential book written, I think, in the 1950s called The Christian Agnostic. Do any of you, does that ring a bell with anybody? Yeah, okay. Uh, it was by Leslie Weatherhead, who was a minister of the City Temple in London. And his the way he answered those questions about Christianity is if you come across something in the Bible or if you come across something in Christianity that you don't understand or you don't like or you can't handle, just bracket it. Put it into brackets. Put it over there on the shelf and don't let it bother you. The same thing that Kushner was saying. Now, Kushner, both Kushner and Weatherhead, made a lot more money than I'll ever make. <laughs> okay. So maybe I should have taken that tag, but I didn't. Okay. I, I, I don't agree with that premise. Um, I yeah, I don't either. I don't agree. The Bible is meant for us to be conflict, have conflicts in it. Right. It's not, it's not an instruction manual. Right. It's develop our thinking and our brain right. and our souls, and it's going to lead us through conflict. It's going to, it's going to like any good play or story that you read, there's, there's actions going on that all lead you to an end result if you follow it and study it. So I, it doesn't surprise me that that's in there right. because God's teaching us something through it. And the parts that are hard, the parts that you just feel like throwing the dadgum book against the wall and letting it splatter like the restaurant, <laughs> you know, the parts you learn from. And Jews are great at that. I mean, Jewish Midrash is great at that, at just saying you got to figure out you got to study it and think about it. You know, it's Psalm 137 of, you know, I want to take their babies and bash them against the rocks. I mean, how's that the Word of God? Well, I don't know, but you're going to think about it, George. The hope that the things you try to believe in, that there's some fundamental truths that you can find. Right. And in lines with what you're saying, trying to sort out the different parts of the Bible, would you say that the sayings of Jesus best they can be identified through the Bible are those fundamental truths that define Christianity. And the rest are important, but they're a development of yeah. fundamental truth and an expansion. Yes. That, I think that's a fair way of saying it. 
and and I would take it one step further and say that remember in, in what we read earlier in the Gospels, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And his answer is to quote two different parts of the Old Testament, one from Leviticus and one from the Shammai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then one from the law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he puts those together. So, so he, you know, 3,000 years into Judaism, or 2,000, whatever, 2,000 years into Judaism, is going back to some of the oldest Jewish documents and saying, this is the essence of what I'm teaching. And then that great commandment, which is what that's called, is certainly consistent with much of the rest of the Old Testament and is held on to by Christians and, and Jews as sort of defining our faith. Okay? So yes, I would, I would affirm that. So let's, let's, this is a good segue into Acts, uh, 17. If you'll turn to Acts 17, 16, this is, I'm going to get, I want to, I want to do this from my text, uh, as well. By this time, Paul, I mean, we've had the Jerusalem Council and it's, it's been settled, you know, that, that we're into Paul's missionary journeys and he is taking, taking the message of, of the resurrection to the Greco-Roman world. And, and what he does, starting in verse 16, I'm just going to take it verse by verse, and then we'll have the break after this. Um, he, you know, verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. Athens is Athens, Greece, and it is the most important city in the ancient world. I mean, it is as, it was the most important city in ancient Greece, and we're well away from ancient Greece, you know, by this time. So, so culturally, intellectually, philosophically, commercially, all of that, it is the center of that world. Um, and then we're told that Paul was deeply t- distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue, which would be with the Jewish community in Athens, uh, with the Jews and with devout persons who were also in the marketplace every day with and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, the people in the synagogue would have been Jewish. Okay, devout persons is a reference to people who were sympathetic to Judaism but who were not Jewish, who were not born Jewish. So you've got yeah, you know, they would they would have been Gentiles, or in in Corinthians they'll be called God fearers. So what you had is, you know, people who were devout Jews, and then you had general people in the population, Gentiles, who were sort of attracted to Judaism. So it was two audience plus the general people in the marketplace. And in the ancient world, the marketplace was not just where you went shopping; it was sort of the gathering place for discussion and learning and community affairs and events and all that. So it was a significant place intellectually. So he's going into the heart of their places of learning. And then in 18, there were also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who debated with him. Again, from Socrates and Plato, people would debate in these places. The Epicureans were follow of Epicurus, who lived in the 4th century BCE, 
um, who, contrary to our current image of them, lived in austerity, <laughs> secluded from civil affairs, and believed that philosophical discussion led to happiness. So they were basically philosophers who withdrew to ponder truth. And then Stoics, we have that as an, as an adjective now, uh, were founded by Zeno at the same period. Stoicism advanced virtue based on knowledge, self-sufficiency, reason, and devotion to duty. Uh, there's a whole movement called Stoicism, but again, part of it too, as, as we use it as an adjective today, is, is sort of detachment, you know, and not, uh, not trying to change things, but but accept things the way they are. So so that's another part of the people that Paul is trying to teach at this sort of one in, in the same moment. And so then you then you get this. I love these reactions. Some of the people in the marketplace said, "What does this babbler want to say?" Um, others said, "Well, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities." This was because he was telling the good news of the resurrection. Now, we get babbler to some extent from the Tower of Babel. I mean, that's what we think is just, you know, what somebody that babbles is, is they just, they talk too much and don't say anything, okay? It literally in Greek means a seed picker. And the thought here is that it's somebody who like, like a bird picks up and drops around bent bits of news, uh, and and one of the one of the things that you'll see in Paul's letters and here too is, uh, you know, there there are a lot of people who just sort of dabble in ideas, or dabble in experiences, or dabble in thoughts, or dabble in even arguments. I mean, Paul will talk about people who have itching ears or people who love controversy for its own sake, there's some sense that they are, um, that that they're thinking Paul is just somebody who's coming around sowing bad seed or picking bad seed or following different ideas. And But it's clearly a threat to to their own sense of, of the divinities that, that they worship. And propagation of foreign gods is not looked upon kindly. In Athens, the ancient Athenians may have misunderstood Paul, and there's some thought that that when when he was saying, you know, Christ in His resurrection, that that they thought he was actually referring to to a female consort of Christ, to his wife, you know, Christ and resurrection. I mean, that's how, you know, that's something I read in one of the notes. So I thought, well, that's interesting. I'll toss that out there. But it, but it's it's clearly uh, because the Greek word resurrection is feminine in in Greek. So anyway, you know, there's there's all kinds of reactions to Paul. Um, so they the the Athenians take him and bring him to the Areopagus, which I think was an internal uh, place of learning and debate, and they ask him, "May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting?" It sounds strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. And I don't think that's necessarily as passive-aggressive as it might sound. I mean, it was genuinely a philosophical cultural that that loved ideas. And then then in 21 it says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there 
would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. I love that phrase. I mean, that's sort of a, it's a sort of critical phrase of, you know, they're spending their time. Everybody loves a new idea. You know, they're just almost bouncing from idea to idea is, is what Luke is saying about it, I guess. Uh, in antiquity, discussion of new ideas is welcome, but these are not quickly embraced. The traditional ways are preferred. Uh, and so then Paul gives a speech starting at, at verse 22, 17-22. And this speech is in the public square to pagans and sojourners to this polyglot of people who are interested in philosophical or religious ideas, but not necessarily you know, Jewish and would not necessarily have had a religious commitment other than possibly to the to the gods of, of to the Greek gods. And so here is what Paul says. Um, starting at verse twenty two, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city, I looked carefully at the objects of your worship, and I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he, him, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though he indeed is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. What is the tone of this? Would you say? Just hearing it. It's hopeful. It's seeking common ground. What has he not yet mentioned? He's not yet mentioned Jesus, not yet mentioned Christ. Scripture. Worship. But he's peaking interest. But he's peaking interest, yeah. Yeah. It is a, he's going in and saying, I see you have all these religious shrines. And, and I'm telling you that the God we worship does not live in shrines, but he is complimenting them as much as he can in every way. And if there is a doctrine that he is falling back on, what is it? Uh, I don't think it's common grace. What's what's an Old Testament event that he's falling back on? Referring to? It's creation so far. I mean, what he, what he is saying is the God who made the world. He, he is saying what gives us this commonality is that God has made the world and, and God has made us. I mean, that's where he's going. He's he's not through yet. But 
but that's sort of the direction he's going. Um, and then what does he do to complement them, among other things? He quotes an inscription on one of their, their shrines, and he quotes who else? A poet, the Robert Frost of their day, you know, Tony Morrison, I mean, you know, Maya Angelou. He quotes somebody that they know and read, okay? I mean, it, it is this attempt to find common ground with them. Um, and then down at 29, since we are God's offspring, again, from creation, we ought not to think of the deity, that the deity is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and the imagination of mortals. He's now beginning a critique or a separation, you know, from what he's affirmed. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, which is actually the first word that Jesus taught because because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What doctrine is that? Resurrection. Okay? And he has referred to a man that God has appointed, but he has not called him by name. It, it's still a very gentle, you know, not necessarily subtle, but just, a, I would say, a gentle, respectful approach. And then we're told that when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, I love this reaction. Every time I preach, I console myself with this reaction. Some scoffed, <laughs> but others said... We'll hear you about this again. We'll think about it. <laughs> they were either polite, they were generally interested. Um, and at this point, Paul left them. And then we're told that some of them joined Paul and became believers, including Dionysius, the, I can't pronounce this, Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Um, I always love that. Some joined, <laughs> some scoffed, and some said, we'll think about it. And that's really, that's really all the church, I think, can ever, can ever accomplish. If you get some people to think about it, if you get a few people to sign up and you don't turn too many people off, then it's a, a pretty good day at the office, <laughs> I guess. Like yeah, it is. That's great. That's great. The parable of the sower, right? right. That's great. Right. That's great. So, um, and and I think that, you know, the questions that it asks, and we'll come back and have, have a discussion. I'll let you take your break. But uh, it's really the degree to which, I mean, the question it raises for us is the degree to which our faith adjusts to the world and seeks to embrace rather than distance um, ourselves from it. And it is almost a missionary strategy. Um, I have a theory. I'm going to tell you two stories, or three quick ones, and then we'll take our break. Um, I have a feeling that many lay people, many ordinary Presbyterians, 
um, and, and Christians and, and Jews as well for that matter. Um, live in the world and know that they make enormous compromises. Know that it just there's just so much of what they hear in church that just doesn't connect, doesn't relate. You know, you just can't. Business is business. You know, you just can't. You can't make that many compromises. And I have a feeling that often that creates either sort of a subtle guilt like, well, I'm really just, I'm really just not good enough to be in church. I mean, I'll go and I'll think about it, but, you know, it's, I'm really, I'm really don't live up to that. Um, I think it can also have the opposite effect of creating sort of a condescension. You know, the world is way too complicated and these ministers that stand up in the pulpit have no idea what I face, have no idea what it's like on the battlefield or no idea what it's like, you know, you name it, whether it's in medicine or law or business or whatever. And and therefore... I think it's easy for lay people to look to look at what happens in the church as being, you know, pretty irrelevant or pretty naive or, or sort of childlike. Well, wouldn't it be nice if the world were that way? Uh, I remember uh, in my church in Houston there was a, there was a young man who was very high in TRW, the, the defense contractor at the time, uh, and he was at the Dinner, if you'll remember, when the first President Bush got sick in Japan. Yeah. I mean, he was at that table, and but I remember him talking about. He came back. And he was a really good, good lay person, and he and he was talking about another corporate executive in the church, and he basically said, you know, there are so many decisions that they have to make every day that just are so much tougher than what we can think about in Christianity. I mean, that was acknowledging the gap. You know, I just can't imagine the world they live in was essentially what he was saying. The opposite of that, which I think is saying the same thing, is is Tom Long is a really was a really good teacher of mine and was a great homiletician. Said that he once went to an Episcopal he once was a guest preacher at an Episcopal church on the east side of New York. Very wealthy, very corporate, you know, some of the wealthiest people in the world. And he went to a men's Sunday school class that was small, an older men's Sunday school class that the, that the rector taught. And it's like the rector taught about half an hour and then left to, to, to go do something. And Tom was there with these four or five men that had been coming for 40 years to that class. And he said afterwards, the men started talking to him. And, and what Tom noticed, he said, I couldn't believe that you had these highly educated corporate executives and lawyers who were just saying the most simple, almost banal Sunday school answers. You know, just like not at all up to the level of, of, of their world and of their uh, education. And, and Tom then said when the rector left, he, he, he just was gutsy enough to say, you know, what, what's this about? It seemed like y'all were really giving simple answers. And, and one of the men spoke up and said, we can't really speak about the world we live in because we don't think our rector could handle it. You know, 
we just don't think he could he could relate to it. Uh, and to me, that's what I meant when I said condescending. So I think in some ways, lay people are, you know, I come to church, it's beautiful, I want to support my kids, but they have no idea. There's just no way it can relate to what I have to do. Or the opposite of that, you know, the opposite of that is, Gee, I would really like that world to be real, but but I know what I have to do day in and day out, and and therefore I'm going to feel guilty about it. You know, therefore I just I don't know if that relates or not. But I'm telling you the story. We have a presentation to make. Come up here. <laughs> is that is that why you were raising your hand? Yeah, yes. I was wondering if I could Come on. Well, you. Can, this was her idea, but it's. Oh. You talk about gratitude. This is our gratitude to you all for the cookies. All right? <laughs> this was a class project, right? So we've gone to... Anyway. Yeah. So... So... Amy made this beautiful card. And if you have not yet signed it and want to sign it, you know, just here it is. Yeah, so... Keep passing it around, and we'll give them the card at the end of the day. So on the break, everybody needs to go on a cookie fast so we can continue to eat them when we get back, okay? <laughs> but thank you all. So with that, they, what, are, what is today's yeah, recipe? Sweet potato bread and molasses cookies. Wow. So have at it, all right? And then we'll come back and do another text. Let's come back, and I'm going to... I really enjoy these, and and Acts has always been a book. It's not been a book I've preached from much, and it's... I I never... never, I don't have a lot of confidence necessarily in the way I I teach it, but I've appreciated the group discussions we've had here, and, and at least the opportunity to look at... At some of these texts, but I would like you to to spend about ten or fifteen minutes on what is listed on your should be listed on your handout as question two, because it's really the follow-up questions to this sermon at Athens that we just read. It it's it should be at the back of your it's page ten. Yeah, you all have a lot here. Yeah. So it's question two on page ten. I have a really thick handout, and I, I guess before we get to that, what I what I want to say about the part that that I didn't get to cover today or didn't cover um, the first part of the lesson, and I think you may have this on your handout, is really a verse by verse of the Jerusalem Council where they make the decision that Christianity, you know, will go into the Greco-Roman world and and Christians will not be required to be circumcised or or follow most of the Jewish law. I felt like we had talked about that enough earlier that I didn't want to try to spend time on that today. The one that I didn't get to, which I think is is, is a really interesting discussion, is is Paul's Damascus Road experience. And what what I want to just point out to you, I think I'll look at these to see how much you've actually gotten the handout. Um, I think you've got about as much as I do. So the the Damascus Road experience is the last part of the handout. 
Yeah, and it starts on page six, seven, and goes through halfway through eight. Um, what this is, because you'll you'll have to do it as homework if we're going to do it at all, is the the Damascus Road experience is where Paul is going to round up Christians and bring them to the synagogue for punishment, if not torture, um, and where he has this blinding experience of the risen Christ, who then flips him to where he becomes the uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul himself is Jewish, so he's got both a change in his understanding of Christ and and of his purpose in life. Instead of being um, a precocious servant in the synagogue, he's he's now going into the Greco-Roman world to take to take Christianity to the Gentile world. Now, he didn't really start that for 14 years, so there's a lot of percolating that happens. Uh, but Acts 9 is the famous account of the Damascus Road experience written by Luke. Uh, then when we, that, so that's a third person account. Then if you, if you look at these citations in Acts 22 and in Acts 26, Paul is telling I mean, he is giving an account of this event also as he is talking to larger groups. There's some variance in details there, but but not hugely. I mean, it's it's still there are lengthy accounts of his experience on the Damascus Road. Then what's interesting is if you'll look at on page seven of your handout, there is in Galatians, which we will read for our next lesson. He he speaks about his life in Judaism prior to this, um, and and he also does that in Second Corinthians eleven indirectly. He he really this is after he's been challenged. He's been he's been spreading the gospel of the Greco-Roman world for a long time, and he's been challenged, and he's answering the challenge in one way by saying how proud he was of his Jewish heritage, but in another way saying, this is what I have suffered as a missionary for Christ. I mean, he's saying both things. And that's in 2 Corinthians 11. And then uh, I, I give you all this because it's then at the top of, of page 8 is is a summary of an article I read by Christopher Stendhal, who's a New Testament professor at Harvard, that I actually got to meet. And... and uh, it, it's still considered a legitimate article because what Stendhal argues is that we have we in the in the American or Western Christian world have sort of over emotionalized Paul's Damascus Road experience and and turned it into more of a model of of conversion or almost altar call, which is so predominant in American religion. And, and what Stendhal argues is what it really is, is a prophetic revelation. He's really like an Old Testament prophet who has been addressed by God and sent on a different mission. So it's an interesting, uh, you know, it's just an interesting way of looking at that. And, and when you look at Paul's references to his former life in Judaism, uh, there's not much rejection of it. I mean, he's basically said, look, I was the star <laughs> in Judaism, and now I have given myself to this mission 
and I've been beaten and arrested and flogged, etc. So there's not a lot of apology about his past. So just if you have time and are interested, read read it through those eyes, which which I've given you, you know, both the verses, but also Stendhal through that. And we just didn't really have time to, to go into that today. So what I'd like you to do now until for for 15 minutes is question two. Uh, and, and I'm going to read it and, and really want you to try to pay attention to it and and be serious about it because it's there are not easy answers for it. Uh, I've got to find it here. Where? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So so these are the questions. At Athens, in this sermon that we just went through, Paul tries to find as much common ground as possible with his hearers, affirming their searching and belief, and then only inviting him to Christian faith rather obliquely and subtly at the end with his reference to, you know, to a man appointed by God. Um, so how do we do this in the church today? And, and you can either be descriptive or prescriptive in saying, you know, where do you see the church trying to to find common ground with people and, and then invite them into a deeper faith? Or you can say, where, where should the church do more of this, try to find common ground with people as, as a way of inviting them in, into Christian faith? Uh, and then the second bullet, what are the pros and cons of affirming as much as we can in culture and not immediately demanding that people give up many cultural and intellectual experiences or values they have? And what are the downsides to this, you know, to, to being that open? Um, and I will just say that, that as a you know, as a kid growing up in sort of the Christian South in in the 60s and 70s, this is a much more pressing question now that 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 American Christians and American churches face than it was when I was a kid. Because when I was a kid, everybody was a Christian, and the values were sort of known, and you knew what was off limits, and you knew what and and a lot of things that were off limits you didn't even know about, you didn't even know existed, but. You know, as as our culture has changed, or or become more open and diverse, or rather, has changed. It, it's really a, you know, it is something that that every Christian and probably Jewish religious community, congregation, denomination, uh, you know, minister or you know, leaders of a local church, to some extent, wrestle with either directly or subtly. So. You yes, Kurt. One thing I'd like to say, if we could apply these questions to the, the bleeding of people leaving the church, how we get them back. Right, right. So I, I think looking at it in that light, because we're basically trying to reignite them and bring them back. Because what is it? Only thirty percent of people attend. Regularly. Yeah, it is really, really plummeting. It's, it's, I mean, cr- the root of most of our problems in this Christian identification is really crumbling. So have it this for about fifteen minutes, and then we're going to come back and have. A couple of nice closings. Listen to each other. Give everybody a chance to talk. If you don't understand the question at your table, raise your hand, and I'll come and confuse you further. Do you all want to? You all want to split up and go somewhere else? Okay, just pick a table. Go plop yourselves.
leader, what are what is good about trying to make your church as open as possible to the world versus what are the downsides of that? It's certainly a changed world. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, any. Let me have your attention back, and I want to do two more things, one of which is quick. Um, I've got, got on here, I think, but look at Acts 27 through 12. Paul at Troas, Trois, I don't know how it's pronounced. Yeah. I have taught a lot of the Bible, and I've got to admit that it's a little hard to find funny stories in the Bible. They're there, but it's a little hard. But this one is genuinely funny, especially if you use your imagination a little bit, okay? So it's Acts 20, starting at verse 7. Acts 20, starting at verse 7. It's, it's actually on your handout, too, at, on page 8. So Acts 20, chapter 20, starting at verse 7. This is when Paul is going from town to town, village to village, you know, city to city, uh, kind of like a traveling evangelist that comes to your hometown on a hot summer evening when there's nothing else to do. So on the first day of the week when we met to break bread, Paul was holding a discussion with them, the people who had gathered. Since he intended to leave the next day and go to the next city, he continued preaching until midnight. There were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were meeting. Now, a young man named Eutychus, otherwise unidentified in the scripture, but obviously a seventh grader whose parents have made him come and listen to this visiting guest preacher at the tent revival down by the river, a young man named Eutychus, who was sitting in the window, began to sink off into a deep sleep (laughs) while Paul talked still longer. Overcome by sleep, Eutychus fell to the ground three floors below and he was picked up by somebody for dead. But Paul went down. And bending over Eutychus, he took him up in his arms and he said to the people around, Don't be alarmed, for his life is still in him. Then Paul went back upstairs, served communion, (laughs) and continued to preach until dawn. Then he left. Meanwhile, they had taken the boy away alive and were not a little bit comforted. Yeah, yeah. Now, there is a, I can't find this, but some of you all will will relate. In in the 1960s, there was a sermon given by by Hans, not Hans Fry, John Fry. I'm, I'm getting, I may be getting this wrong, but he served second pres in chicago i think he was an, he had been an associate pastor at fourth presbyterian in chicago when harrison ray anderson was the golden throated 
minister orator of that church on the Miracle Mile in Chicago, looking over Lake Michigan. And he wrote the funniest sermon based on this passage of what it was like to be an associate pastor and have to sit up in the chancel three times on Sunday morning and listen to this golden-throated orator preach three times. And what he talked about in the sermon, I've read the sermon, but it's pre-Google, it's pre-online. I have never been able to find it since. But I read it about 35 years ago. But what he talks about is all the strategies that associate pastors develop to stay awake, (laughs) like Eutychus. And you all can try these sometimes in the pew. You don't have to be clergy. But one, one of them is to hold both feet off the ground. You can't go to sleep if you're holding both your feet off the ground. And the other is how to suppress a yawn or how to hide a yawn. So it's just great. But that's Eutychus, okay? It's just funny. you got to have a little humor in the Bible. Okay, so if you all come up with... If you have other secrets in the pews that you develop for staying awake, please email to them and email me to them and we'll you have one? Doodle, yeah, you can doodle, yeah. You can sit by a window, you know. And yeah, I know. It's hard, it's hard. I mean, you know, we go to work early, you know. Sometimes we're out late, so for a legitimate reason. Okay. On a more serious note, I do want to include by reading what's a little bit of a dense poem, but it is a wonderful poem by Philip Larkin called Church Going. And a member of this class, someone like you all, sent me this poem about seven or eight years ago that I'd never, I'd never encountered it. Um, but it is a wonderful poem. And uh, in a time in which, as we've said a couple of places tonight, the uh, you know, established religion in America is really wrestling with its being disestablished and just the very quick secularization in our culture. This, this is somewhat comforting. Once I am sure there's nothing going on, I step inside, letting the door thud shut. Another church, matting, seats, and stone, and little books. You probably encounter them all the time on your pilgrimages. Country churches in Europe that that have seen their better days. Sprawlings of flower, flowers cut for Sunday, brownish now. Some brass and stuff up at the holy end. The small, neat organ and a tense, musty, unignorable silence. Old churches are quiet and they're musty. An unignorable silence brood God knows for how long. Hatless, I take off my cycle clips in awkward reverence. Obviously somebody cycling through Europe. Move forward, run my hand around the font, From where I stand, the roof looks almost new, cleaned or restored. Someone would know. I don't. Mounting the lectern, I peruse a few hectoring large-scale verses and pronounce, Here endeth, much more loudly than I'd meant. 
The echoes snigger briefly. Back at the door, I sign the book, donate an Irish sixpence, I guess this is in Ireland, and reflect the place was probably not worth stopping for. Yet stop I did, and in fact I often do. And always end much at a loss like this, wondering what to look for, Wondering, too, when churches will fall completely out of use, what we shall turn them into. If we shall keep a few cathedrals chronically on show, their parchment, plate, and picks in locked cases. And let the rest, least the rest, rent free to rain and sheep. Shall we avoid them as unlucky places? Or after dark, will dubious women come to make their children touch a particular stone, pick simples for a cancer, or on some advised night, see walking a dead one? Power of some sort will go on, in games and riddles seemingly at random, but superstition, like belief, must die, and what remains when disbelief has gone. Grass, weedy pavement, brambles, buttress, sky. A shape less recognizable each week, a purpose more obscure. I wonder who will be the last, the very last, to seek this place for what it was. One of the crew that tap and jot and know what rude lofts were. Some ruined bibber randy for antique. Or some Christmas addict counting on a whiff of gown and bands and organ pipes and myrrh. Or will he be my representative? I gotta take this. I didn't print my next page. Yeah. Or will he be my representative, bored, uninformed, knowing the ghostly silt dispersed, yet tending to this cross of ground through suburb scrub because it held unsplit so long and equably what sense is found only in separation, marriage and birth and death and thoughts of these, for which was built this special shell, this sanctuary. For though I've had, for though I have no idea what this accoutred, frowsty barn is worth, it pleases me to stand in silence here. A serious house on serious earth it is in whose blent air all our compulsions meet, are recognized and robed as destinies. And that much can never be obsolete, since someone will forever be surprising a hunger in himself to be more serious and gravitating with that hunger to this ground, which he once heard was proper to grow wise in, if only that so many dead lie round. Isn't that wonderful?
And it, it occurs to me, it's like the book, the title of the book, To Gain Wisdom. I mean, it is a promise that no matter how hokey and bureaucratic and administrative and how many uh, cups of chicken stew and paper plates we use in fellowship dinners and how much work days and grass we have to mow and all those kind of things, the church is a serious place where people bring a hunger and, and that will never go away. And it's a privilege to be a part of that. So thank you all. Hunger all you want over the holidays, but don't eat too much because there will be cookies waiting when you come back. <laughs> all right. so, happy Thanksgiving.